We are going to be in the book of Revelation two more times today. We're going to finally finish out the last chapter of this very wonderful, sometimes puzzling book. Revelation chapter 22. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 9, where the Apostle John writes, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And he said unto me, These sayings are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. Let's pray together. That's the very purpose we have come together, our Lord and our God. We have gathered here together as people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, longing to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we come to you knowing our faults and our foibles, knowing our weaknesses, knowing most certainly that we do not deserve to experience such lavish grace and love and kindness. Nevertheless, you have bestowed it upon us, and now we gather together to worship you and to sing songs of praise, to give back to you what you have given to us, and now to hear from you. I pray that all of us together would hear the words of this book, and do it, for in so doing, we will find immeasurable blessings. Feed us this day from your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage before us is probably one of my favorites. Um, Revelation 21 is, is also one of my favorites, which is part of why I wanted that to be the scripture reading. There's, it's just the end of the story. It's the favorite part of the book we all want to get to. Whenever you read a uh, 
a novel or a mystery or something like that, there's always going to be the conflict and there's going to be the great crescendo of conflict, but at some point you're longing for the resolution. And I think the reason why I personally like chapters 21 and 22 is finally it's the end of the story and it's a happy ending. It's the ending that we want. One of the questions I've been asked before by some of my friends is, do you have a happy place? And I ask you that. Do you have a happy place? Some of you may have no clue what on earth I'm talking about when I say that. So let me, let me explain. Is there a location or a place or a set of circumstances that when you find yourself at that place or in those circumstances, you just find yourself to be indescribably happy? For me, one of the favorite places I like to go back to and I find great joy in doing so is going back to my home state. I kind of turn into a little giddy seven or eight-year-old when I see the Minnesota state sign every time we cross the state. Because to me, in some ways, it's still like going back home. It's one of my happy places. Another happy place I like to go to is anywhere where there's a bookstore. There, in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, there is a, a bookstore called Baker Bookhouse. And uh, Laura and the boys and I, a few months ago, drove the three-plus hours to get there just to go to that bookstore. And when I was there, it was just this indescribable feeling of happiness being around so many books and uh, knowing I can't buy very many of them, but that I was around them. You probably have that too. You probably have a place that you go to that makes you happy, and it's hard to describe that feeling. I think as John saw these things recorded in the book of Revelation, some of which were horrible things, things where he sees people who are violating the holy law of God, and God is rightly condemning and judging them for it, and they're still spitting in his face, shaking their fists in the face of God, saying, we curse you, we blaspheme your name. But at the same time, he sees angelic creatures around the throne singing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. And in our text today, he sees a pure river of water of life, and he sees the tree of life, whose leaves were for the healing of the nations. I don't want to speak or put words in John's mouth, but I wonder, as he saw this vision, if perhaps in a 2,000 years ago language, for him, he would have described it perhaps as his happy place. The place he can't wait to be. The place perhaps he thought, do I ever have to leave this vision? Can I just be there? I hope that for all of us as Christians, it will be our happy place. It's the happy place we long to be, and for reasons that I think we'll see in just a moment. But I want to start by looking at verses 8 and 9, because I think it sets the tone for the rest of the previous seven verses. In verse 8, John essentially is concluding his entire book. And he says, I heard and I saw these things. And he's talking about everything that he saw inside the book of the Revelation, everything that Jesus Christ had revealed to him through his messenger, this angel. He sees all of the judgments of God. He sees the throne room of God where there are the elders falling down on their faces, worshiping God and saying, holy, holy, holy 
he sees the wrath of God on display when in chapter 20, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire and anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. He sees all these things. And ultimately, I think he sees the glory of God clearly on display. So that when he sees these things, his response, he says, when I heard and I saw, I fell down to worship. For most of us, we look at the book of Revelation and it just seems confusing. And let's, let me just say, you're in good company. Good, godly, wise, brilliant men of church history have often avoided preaching through this book. One of the greatest of the reformer era from the 16th century, John Calvin, didn't preach from the book of Revelation because it was so mysterious. But John, I think, models for us the entire purpose of this book. The entire purpose of the book of Revelation is not for us to get caught up in the minutia of all the details, not trying to get caught up in the details of a, a calendar or some kind of timeline for what is going to happen, although clearly those are important things. I'm not saying they're not important, but I think that's not the main point. The main point is to worship God for who he is. And John's reaction is completely understandable. If you were in John's shoes and you saw all that he saw, he's trying to write down in the limited human vocabulary that he can the majestic, terrifying, mysterious things he sees. But I guarantee you the things that he writes down under the superintendent of God's spirit still does not even come close to describing what he actually saw. What he saw moved him to worship. Now here's the problem. The guy standing in front of him isn't God. He says, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. His reaction, I think, is right and proper. He fell down to worship. The problem was, in the moment, he's just falling down and worshiping the one who's simply the messenger. And when he says, when he says I fell down and worship, verse 9, this messenger, this heavenly creature says, see, you don't do that. <laughs> don't worship me. I am just like you. Now, most of us, when we look at any time an angel is described in the book of Re Revelation, or frankly, in, in any of Scripture, it's always a terrifying thing. Almost like, in some ways, we think, okay, maybe I won't speak for you, I'll speak for me. In some ways, I think it's almost as though the angels are almost a, a level higher than humans, even though we know that that, that we will be, he says, you'll be judging the angels. But in some ways, it's almost as though, though the angel is higher. And so when, when we see this angel saying, don't worship me, we have to remember the angels are just like us in the sense that they are derived creatures. They're not eternal, self-existing, omnipotent, omniscient, like only one is, God and he alone deserves that worship. So this creature, this heavenly creature says, whoa, 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 slow down, dude. Don't you be worshiping me. I'm just like you. I'm simply a creature. I'm simply a servant of the Most High God. I'm just like you. I'm just your fellow servant of your brethren and the prophets and of those who keep the words of this book, which means you and me. He's just like you and me. We're just creatures. But what is his exhortation to John? 
your response is right. He doesn't say, don't worship. He says, worship God. And I believe that's the point of this, that we are called to worship God. So if John's response to everything that he sees is to worship God, why does he respond that way? And why does the angel say, your response is right? I believe there's six reasons why in the verses just that we're looking at. Like I said, his response is in regards to everything he's seen in Revelation. But let's just take the previous seven verses and see these six reasons, I believe, we as Christians, as people, must worship God, and we must do so now. We cannot wait. We must do so now. The first reason is this, because here we see that God is the giver of eternal life. Notice with me verses 1 and 2. He showed me a pure river of water of life. And notice in verse 2. And on either side of the river was the tree of life. I believe the first reason in our text today is that God is the giver of eternal life. Apart from God, we are nothing. We deserve nothing besides his judgment. But God in his gracious kindness gives and bestows to us life. If you look at those first two verses, does it remind you of anywhere else in Scripture? The parallels of Revelation 22 are too striking to miss with Genesis chapter 2. So I encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. They say that the end of the Bible mirrors the beginning of the Bible, and in the same way, the end of life mirrors the beginning of life. And I believe that there is truth to that. Genesis Chapter 2, in beginning down in verse 4, God has blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, and he's rested from all of his work. And now in verse 4, it says, These are the generations of the heavens of the earth when they were created in the, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the garden and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now notice in verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So before I keep reading, God has specifically planted a beautiful garden. And the man that he just created out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, God places him within this garden. Which means, before sin, before any of that, this was God's intention for mankind to be with him in this beautiful place and enjoy life. Verse 9, Out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. Two things mentioned by Moses in Genesis chapter 2. 
There is a tree of life. What does it mean when it says it's a tree of life? Frankly, I believe it is a, it is a, a picture, a representation of what Adam and Eve enjoyed with God. That the tree of life is a representation of their holy access to holy God in which they enjoyed holy life. And the same thing for this river in verse 10 that went out of Eden to water the garden. The, the language of a tree of life and this river flowing out in this garden that represents the, the joy of the presence of eternal God. I don't think it can be missed. And now John, he sees this. And John is an apostle of Jesus Christ. I guarantee you when he sees the tree of life and when he sees this pure river of water of life, he knows exactly what it's communicating. That the one who is the author of life, who intended for his creatures, you and me, to be with him and enjoy life forever, is now finally bringing to close the promise he made. To give to us life. So in Revelation 22 then, when he sees this pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, he knows that this is a representation of eternal life. The life that he has longed for. In fact, that he described in his gospel, in John. He, he talks about Jesus as the light that all through him might believe he was the true light, which, lights, which gives light to every man according to the world. He was in the world, and the world made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. And you could keep reading there. But the point is, John understood that this life is represented in the fact that we one day will enjoy the eternal life given to us by God. Notice that this river is coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. All throughout the book of Revelation, the Lamb and the, the Father are separate on their thrones. But here, this river of life is coming from both. And I believe that this is an emphasis on the unity between the Father and the Son. And finally, in verse 2, when he talks about this tree of life bearing 12 fruits, yielding fruit every month, I believe that this is talking about the blessing of this eternal life, that this is a tree representing the life that we have because of Christ. There's one phrase at the end of verse 2. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That is a puzzling phrase. Why, why is there a need for a tree with leaves that are for the healing of the nations? Some people have said that seems kind of ridiculous because isn't in this new heaven and this new earth, there is no more sin. So what is there any need for healing? I believe that really it is metaphorical in the same way that when God wipes away our tears in chapter 21 verse 4, also is metaphorical. Will there be tears in the new heaven and the new earth? No, because there'll be no need for sorrow. 
When God wipes away our tears, it's talking about the finality of sorrow. When there's a tree of life that has leaves for the healing of the nations, it's talking about finally the healing, the wellness that we have been longing for. We're longing for right now. We see the world right now. We see nation after nation fighting and warring against each other. We see our own nation fighting amongst its, its citizens in and, of it, in and of themselves. We see the pain, the sorrow that has caused because of the sin that we rebelled against God and justly received the condemnation of God. We see the results of that. We see the, the curse. But this tree of life will bring about the healing, ultimate healing, that we're waiting for. When I get sick, when you get sick, we always hope that we're going to get better. For us, our spiritual sickness as Christians will get better. There is a tree of life one day that is for the healing of all the nations where every people and tribe and tongue who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus will stand before his throne. They will see the tree of life. They will see the river of life and they will enjoy the presence of God and experience the healing that he gives. So one of the reasons to worship God is because we are given eternal life. And you may ask, what do you mean by eternal life? And this, that's what the gospel's all about, isn't it? How do you have a right standing with a holy God? We read Genesis 2. We saw that God intended us to have that access to his presence, that joy of his relationship with us, but, but we don't have that now. And you may be sitting here wondering, I feel, like, I feel like God doesn't hear me. I feel like God doesn't see me. I feel like I'm searching for something. I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to be worshiping something, but I don't know what. And the answer is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You were created by God to worship him, but you can't because of your sin. Thankfully, you can experience and know eternal life through the message that Jesus gives. And that is the message that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved and know eternal life. Are you in here today not knowing eternal life? You can, and you can enjoy one day this pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God. You can see and enjoy and experience the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. But it's only, only through the way, which is Jesus. So the first reason to worship God is because of the eternal life he gives. But second, it's because of the eternal peace that we have with him. Notice in verse 3, this phrase is just one of my favorites. There shall be no more curse. I can't wait for that. Can you? I, I wrestled last night with my own pride and sin, feeling completely unworthy to open these holy words and reading them to you and proclaiming them to you. And this phrase right here, there shall be no more curses, one I can't wait for. And I guarantee you probably feel the exact same way because you probably came here with cares on your heart, burdens on your heart, pain in your soul, sin that you're struggling with. And you just want to do the right thing but you know there's still indwelling sin in you. And here's the hope. One day there's going to be eternal peace. There's not going to be conflict between the spirit and your flesh. 
There's not going to be conflict between Christian and Christian. There's not going to be sin and killing and wars anymore. There will be no more curse. And it's a day that I long for. It's a day you long for. It will be eternal peace. There won't be any more curse. And because there's no more curse, guess what that means? You can enjoy the healing balm of God's presence. Verse 3, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. The presence of God is what we long for. Why do you think we come to a place like this room, and many times churches will refer to it as the auditorium, but often and historically it has been referred to as the sanctuary, Latin, sanctus, the holy place. We want the holy presence of God, don't we? That's what this is talking about. The holy presence of God will not be in the presence of sin, but when sin is gone and eternal life is here, there will be no more curse, and we will enjoy the felicity of God's presence forever. Eternal peace. There'll be no more curse. And in verse 4, they will see his face. This is the third reason we should worship God, is because we will have his eternal presence They shall see his face. What has been the theme throughout Scripture? No man can see God and live. Why? Because of sin. We cannot be in the presence of God because of our sin, which is why it mystifies me why sometimes I take my sin so lightly. How can I take my sin so lightly when I know that I cannot be in the presence of God in my sin? Thankfully, it is because of the robes of the righteousness of Jesus that one day I'll be able to stand in the place of God as well as you if you've trusted him. And it is because of that that one day we will finally see his face. Moses longed to see the face of God, didn't he? He wanted to see God. He said, God, show me your glory. And what does God say to him? Moses, you know better than that's that. No man can see me and live, but I'll show you a portion, just a sliver of my glory. One day it won't just be a sliver. One day God will not be veiling his holy presence from us. But just as when Christ gave up his spirit on the cross and the curtain separating mankind from the holy of holies, the presence of God was torn in two, so one day... Will we be able to see the, with full view the face of God and his name will be on their foreheads? That is, that is an ancient way of describing the fact that we belong to him. We belong to him. So we will enjoy the eternal presence of God. Is that what you long for? That's what I do. The the fourth thing is the eternal light that there is. In verse 5, John says, There's going to be no night there, because there's no need for lamp or light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever. I was talking with one of the men in our church last Sunday who made the comment that darkness isn't a thing. It's merely the absence of light. In this new eternal state with God, there will be no darkness. There will only be eternal light. When there's darkness, you can't see anything. 
When there's light, you can see clearly. Here we will see in the eternal presence and the brilliance of the light of God, we will enjoy no night, no shadows, no more darkness, only eternal light. A fifth reason I believe that we can rejoice in worshiping God together is because of his eternal promises. Notice in verse 6, the angel turns to John after he has viewed this glorious vision and says to him, these words are faithful and true. Is there nothing more frustrating than to wonder if something is true or not? John perhaps wondered, is this too good to be true? Everything I saw in this book, it's like a fairy tale, it seems like. Is this really going to happen? Is God going to finally eradicate sin completely? Will we no longer be under the weight of the curse? Is there going to be a time when we enjoy the holy presence of God where there's nothing but abundance of light, no more shadows or darkness? Can this possibly be true? It seems too good to be true. It's almost like when you get in the mail, you know when you get, maybe, maybe I'm the only one, but we get in the mail, you get this like from, from a car dealership and it's this big square and it's got, you know, pull, pull this key off and scratch this off and see if you want a vehicle. And every time you did, you're like, this is too good to be true. Is that what this is? We're given a promise over and over again. We're scratching off and we're seeing that this is true, but, but is it Really? The angel assures John, these words are faithful and true. Why are they faithful and true? Is it because the angel said so and we're supposed to be like, okay, yeah, I guess. Take him at his word. Perhaps John wondered, are these true? I believe they're faithful and true because the one who revealed them is ultimately faithful and true. Humans will not be consistently faithful and true. You will not be consistently faithful and true. But there is one who is, whose words you can believe every single time, which means if God says the penalty for rebelling against me is eternal death, then I'm begging you to believe him. If he says the reward of trusting Christ is the eternal blessing of my presence in the future. I'm begging you to believe him. These words are faithful and true because God is faithful and true. And the truthfulness of his words do not depend on my feelings. Whether or not I feel they're true, the faithfulness and the veracity of his words rest in his integrity. But he also says in verse 6, the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Now is when we're starting to wonder, okay, is this, is this really faithful and true? It's been 2,000 years. I don't know about you, but 2,000 years does not seem like a shortly must take place timeline in my mind. But in the mind of God, in the eternal mind of God, who sees things from an eternal perspective, who, the one who had no beginning and who has no end, who simply is, who says to Moses, you tell Pharaoh, I am. To him, 
this moment in time is just a blip. It's fleeting. And in his mind, this will shortly take place. And God revealed this to us. His eternal promise. This is going to happen. So what should we do? Because of its eternal promise, we should worship him. And finally, the sixth reason I think we see is in verse 7. And that is the promise from God of eternal blessing. Behold, I am coming quickly. So, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. There is eternal blessing in obedience. Those who place their hope in God, who hear and do the words of Scripture, regardless of what people around you may think of it. You're following an antiquated book. This is nothing but a set of fairy tales. We live in modern times. We know that science refutes this. This is a bunch of people in a backwards time. If you believe that there's some kind of cosmic God out there who's going to enact judgment on us, you're just a fool. But God says, let, let the railers rail. Let the fools who reject my words be fools. You need to know I'm coming quickly. And if you keep the words of the prophecy of, of this book, there will be eternal blessings. If you were to go to the churches in, in Revelation 2 and 3, at the end of every single one of them, what does God assure the church? In spite of how good they may have been doing in their service to him or how much they may have been struggling, what is always the promise? To him who overcomes, I will. And God gives the promise. There is eternal reward and blessing in obedience. So if people refuse to obey, they're refusing to believe God at his word and receive the blessing of it. The reason why we obey God is not because he's some kind of cosmic dictator who's demanding that we obey him. Even though that is true, he is a king and we must obey. But it's not merely out of a sense of duty and fear. But it's out of a love and the abundant joys that come with it. So when John falls down to worship, albeit the wrong being, He's worshiping another creature. His response is right. We are called to worship God. And when we meet together on Sundays, together as redeemed people, we are worshiping God together. This is not a joke. This is not a ritual. It's not a mere tradition. This is an unholy act of worship from our hearts. And when we behold the words of this book and we embrace them and we find joy in them, there is eternal blessing as a result. So my point is simple. It's only three words. Worship God now. Because here's the reason why I add the now at the end. Ultimately, if people don't worship God now, there is nothing for them to hope for in the future. You cannot say, all right, I'll just hold off on worshiping God now 
And maybe later I'll do it. The eternal judgment of God awaits those who refuse to worship him, for that's what we were created to do, isn't it? Worship God now, because if you are worshiping God now, if you are embracing and loving God now, if you are finding joy in God now, then how much sweeter, how much more wonderful, how much more indescribably joyous will it be to worship God in the happy place that we are awaiting for? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do not deserve such kindnesses from your hand, but you, in mercy and goodness, give to us these immeasurable blessings, and ultimately it begins with our embrace of Jesus Christ who can save us from our sins and give to us eternal life. I pray, Lord, for any soul in this room who has yet to believe and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, who can redeem them from their sins and who will do so if they repent and turn to him, that you would impress upon their heart the desire and need to embrace Christ and to worship you now, for today is the day of salvation. As your servants, as people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and who long to see your face, to be in your presence, to enjoy the eternal life, the eternal peace, the eternal light that will one day be ours because of Christ. Give to us hope. Help us not to grow weary in doing good. And Lord, I pray as well that we would, as John exhorted us and as the angel repeatedly said that we would both behold our God for who he is and worship him, but also that we would hear and do the words found in this book. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.